0: American soccer fans, welcome to episode 68 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Donald Wine here, manager of Stars and Stripes FC, your source for all things U.S. national teams, the players that comprise them, and everything else surrounding the game of soccer in America. I hope everybody had a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful start to Kwanzaa, and as we close out the final days of 2021, I thought it made sense to do an end-of-year episode where we kind of recap the year in soccer for our national teams. We will also dive into the mailbag and answer some of the incredible questions that I've received over the last few days. So I thank you all in advance for those people who submitted questions. You'll want to stick around for the answers to those questions. But let's start with the year that was 2021. It was incredibly busy for all of us. Uh, We've had a lot of things going on, as I'm sure uh, you guys have, covid has affected a lot of things, both at the beginning and currently as we sit here uh, on December 28th, 2021, it is still affecting us in uh, various ways. So uh, first and foremost, I hope everyone out there is safe and healthy and is maintaining throughout this COVID pandemic. We still have a long way to go. So I hope everyone is doing what they can to keep you and everyone around you healthy. Uh, That's the most important thing. Of course, it affected a lot of competitions. We had some competitions that were in 2020 that was pushed to 2021. And because of that, this year was very important for both the men's and women's national teams, our senior national teams, and even the youth. Uh, The men's U23 obviously had an important competition that we will discuss in a little bit. But when we recap this year, let's start with the men's national team. The men's national team went 17, two, and three on the year. That's wins, losses, and draws. 17 wins. That's 17 wins, two losses, and three draws. They started the year ranked 22nd in the world, according to the FIFA World Rankings. And as of December 23rd, they will enter 2022 as the 11th ranked team. So they rose 11 spots this year. That is a very, very good achievement for the United States. Being at or near the top 10, they were actually... Uh, number 10 at one point a couple of months ago. This is an incredible achievement for a team that, you know, four years ago, we all know what happened. There was a World Cup and we weren't in it. So to rise 11 spots in one year is an incredible accomplishment for any team. Uh, So I congratulate the United States men's national team for that. Why did they raise 11 spots? Well, they won two very important competitions. One being the Nations League, which they won with a 3-2 win over Mexico after extra time, the Nations League, my favorite tournament, of course. And the Gold Cup, they won the CONCACAF Gold Cup in a one nothing thriller over again over Mexico after extra time. So in the span of two months, they won two trophies over Mexico and extra time, both with Mexico, mind you, employing their A-squads and in the case of the Gold Cup for the United States, not having many of their regulars, much less their stars on that roster. So again, Greg Berhalter and the players getting it done this summer for the United States, winning two trophies in the span of two months. When it comes to CONCACAF, there are only one set of kings, and they wear red, white, and blue, not the colors of El Trees. So that is fun for me, and I know that was fun for you. This summer was a great summer for the men. They also beat Mexico, In World Cup qualifying, why do I mention the three wins over Mexico? Well, as I've mentioned before on this show, Greg Berhalter became the first coach since 1937 to win three times in one calendar year in the USA-Mexico rivalry. So three wins over Mexico in one year has not been done since 1937. And on the flip, Mexico has not done it to the United States since then either. So that was a great, great accomplishment. Mostly for the team, but also in a way for Greg Berhalter personally to kind of escape some of the demons and some of the critics that he's had to say, hey, look, he can put that on his resume. Three wins over Mexico in one year. No coach has done that in a very, very long time. And in World Cup qualifying, we are obviously still in the middle of it. We're a little more than halfway through eight games out of 14 complete. The United States is currently second in the octagonal, one point behind Canada, which makes that away match in Hamilton on January 30th, a very, very important game for CONCACAF and for the United States to see who will be likely in first place in the octagonal as they emerge from the January window. So still a lot to play for in 2022 for the United States men's national team. They still have to try and qualify for the World Cup. There is a World Cup in November. We will talk about that a little bit later, but a really great year for the men's national team. If you think about it from start to finish 17, two and three, a tremendous accomplishment 17 wins, mind you is the most that a men's national team has won in one calendar year. Now there were 46 goals scored by 22 goal scorers, and I'm going to list all of them right now. So leading the charge with four goals, each was Brendan Aronson and Sebastian legit with three goals. You have Daryl DK, Ricardo Pepe, Christian Pulisic, the men's player of the year, Gio Rana, and Miles Robinson. With two goals, Paul Ariola, Sergio Dest, Jesus Ferreira, Jonathan Lewis, Weston McKinney, and Giasi Zarda. So quite a few guys scoring multiple goals for the United States. And with one goal for the United States on the year, Cole Bassett, Reggie Cannon, Nicholas Joachini, Matthew Hoppe, Shaq Moore, Anthony Robinson, Jordan P. Falk. Sam Vines and Tim Wea and I should mind you there were two own goals. One of those should have been credited to Tim Wea, but I understand that why it was credited as an own goal. So Timmy, if you're listening to this, shout out to you. You actually got two in my mind because I saw the second one roll in off of your right foot. So that completes it for the men's team. Again, a tremendous year. 17-2-3. Couldn't ask for much better for the United States men's national team. We still have a lot to play for in 2022, and we're going to start with it really early. But for now, we can look back and, and marvel at what they did accomplish this year. Now we go to the women. The women's national team had an interesting year. There were 17, 2, and 5. So again, 17 wins. A lot of wins for the women's national team. Two losses, five draws. They won the She Believes Cup, and they were very dominant in doing so back in February of 2021. They then were focused on becoming the first team to win a women's world cup followed by winning the gold medal at the Olympics. And in that, which was arguably the biggest prize of the year for us soccer, the women came up short. They ended up with bronze, which is a great medal nonetheless, but when it comes to their goals and their aspirations, they wanted gold and they ended up with bronze. Uh, They started the year at number one. They still end as the best team on the planet, but that gap has shrunk considerably between the U.S. and the rest of the top 10. So the women's national team, despite the number of wins, despite the She Believes Cup victory, probably have a bitter taste in their mouth with a bronze medal instead of gold from the Olympics. But again, 2022, they have some stuff to play for. They will have Olympic qualifying and World Cup qualifying in the summertime in one tournament. So next summer is going to be an incredibly important time for the women's national team and for Vlaco and Danosky and the staff to try and make sure some of these rotations and have healthy players ready to go so that next summer they can focus on qualifying for 2023 in New Zealand and Australia, as well as 2024 in Paris. There were 70 goals scored by the women's national team scored by 15 players. And again, I will go through that list right now. Leading the charge, Carly Lloyd, who ended up retiring after scoring 11 goals on the season. Megan Rapino with 10 goals. Alex Morgan with eight. You had Lindsey Horan, Sam Mewis, and Kristen Press with six. Rose Lavelle, Lynn Williams with five. Tobin Heath, Katerina Macario with three. With two goals, you have Astley Hatch, Christy Mewis, Midge Purse, and Andy Sullivan. And Sophia Smith also added one goal on the year. The own goal appeared four times on the box scores for the women's national team this year. So that was a look at the women. Finally, we come to the youth. And when it comes to the youth national teams, it's hard to gauge what really happened with most of them because really we didn't see them play. We only saw one team really hit the field and it was for a very important task. It was the men's U23s and they were tasked with trying to make the Olympics for the first time since 2008. And in that they did not succeed. They did not qualify for the Olympics, losing to Honduras in the semifinal round of CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. And for the first time, the men's U23s failed to qualify for the Olympics three straight times. So obviously something that was a disappointment to a lot of people and Again, the Olympics are right around the corner. We will probably have Olympic qualifying coming. It likely in 2023 or early 2024, but the men still have a ways to go before they can redeem themselves by trying to qualify for Paris 2024. Keep in mind, 2028 is the Olympics in LA and they will automatically qualify for those Olympics. So they want to get on track and get that, motor running with 2024 so they can use that as momentum for the next Olympics. As for the other youth teams, most of them were on hiatus for 2020 and 2021. And we just started to see some come back online. We saw some coaches being hired. We saw some training camps convene, uh, but not a lot of matches. So we're really looking forward to 2022 and hopefully getting the cycles back on track with regards to the women and men's youth national teams We won't see any World Cups uh, until 2023. The U-20s and the U-17s were canceled in 2021. So it will be interesting to see what they do next year to try and get those players back online and back active playing matches. But when it comes to the youth national teams, the future is still bright. And now we got to reboot those teams and kind of get them back rolling again. So that is a look at U.S. Soccer in 2021 uh, at least from the from the playing field. Coming up next we are going to answer some of your questions. So sit tight through this quick break and when we get back we dip into the mailbag. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back here on the Stars and Stripes Etsy podcast, and we are dipping into the mailbag. Uh, this past couple of days, I have asked, for, solicited all of your questions with regards to U.S. soccer and some of the leagues and, and some of the players. So we got a ton of questions, and I want to go through as many of them as I possibly can, but obviously, I wasn't able to get to all of them. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions, and in advance, I apologize that I if I did not get to your particular question, but we have quite a few that I thought were really interesting and worth discussing. So I want to start with a question that comes on Twitter from at MJ, the CPA and MJ, the CPA writes, if, or when we have everyone healthy, how do we get wingers like Reina, Polisic, and Whale on the field at the same time is Aaronson doomed for the bench when everyone is healthy? I don't necessarily know if Aronson is doomed for the bench if everyone is healthy. I think that makes it a really good competition, right? And it sounds like to me, or at least it seems to me, that Waya is not going to get a lot of run at the nine. He's going to get run on that right wing where he can kind of flow in and kind of be a false nine at times if you want but I think it's an interesting play to see if you can get those guys onto the field at the same time. It would honestly require changing change in the formation in my mind because in a four, three, three, that Burr traditionally plays, there's only room for three wingers at most. Usually there's only room for two wingers. You can at most have three if you play someone out of position. But I think if you're talking about Reina, Pulisic, Wea, and Aronson, In all likelihood, two of those four are coming off of the bench. And that's fine, too, because you don't want to have all of your stars on the field at the same time and all of them get tired. I love the fact that we're able to bring in an Aronson and have another team go, oh, crap, I just got done, you know, trying to guard Pulisic for 60 minutes. Now I got to deal with this guy. There's something to be said about having super subs come off the bench that are just as good and could start at a moment's notice. So when it comes down to it, I think if everyone is healthy, as of this moment, I think you see Burhalter go with Polisic and Reyna, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Waya and Aronson won't get a lot of playing time. It just means you got to be creative when you do. So uh, it'll be great to see all of them back healthy. I think that's I think we can all agree that's the number one step right now. Reyna has been out for quite a bit. way has been hurt at times. Polisic's been hurt at times. Aronson's probably been the healthiest of the four of them. So uh, it's let's hope that through this winter break we can get everyone back healthy and playing again. So that come January, we can have this debate about who we can start and who will play because they're all able to do so. So thank you MJ for that question. The next question comes from my friend, Brian Davis. And he asks, are we really expecting any other players other than Ricardo Pepe to move in January? And if so, what are the best landing spots? Well, Brian, that's a great question because I think Pepe, if if only Pepe moved in January, I think it would be way slower of a window than we all expect it to be. Because as of right now, we've seen rumors, and this is just a smattering of rumors, from uh, regarding Ricardo Pepe, Serginio Dest, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic, Daryl D.K., and even Brendan Aronson, maybe making a move in January. It's becoming a second silly season. Usually this is something we talk about over the summer where rumors are just wild about where people will end up. But I think there's a reason why January might be a second silly season. This particular window it's because of the fact that the world cup is in November, not June, right? So players want to be settled with their teams. They want to be playing full time. They want to make sure they are in preseason early and able to do the things that they can be at full strength when the world cup happens so that they are available for selection. Transferring in the summertime to a new team may disrupt that flow for them. So it seems like a lot of players want to move now so that they're already established at their club this summer. Also, it means that 2023 in January could be another volatile transfer window because the World Cup will have just concluded and teams will be looking for players who starred in that tournament. And I know a lot of players may want to wait on their move until after the World Cup so that they have the maximum value for a team and they can maybe have more suitors and pick their place a little bit better instead of going to just the only place, the only team that calls them. I think when it comes to Pepe, I think we do see him make a move. It sounds like he's moving to Wolfsburg. I don't know if that's the best place for him, but I obviously hope he does well and is able to play over and over. I think when it comes to all these guys, the guys that I mentioned and anyone who's talking about transferring, It's not about going to the best team. It's not about going to the biggest club. It's about going to the place that gives them the best opportunity to play all the time and learn and grow on the job. Not necessarily without competition, but I want it where they're playing all the time. Because as we know, we want our guys clicking on all cylinders by the time this World Cup comes around in November. So that means that these guys need to be playing every day wherever they may be. So if Pepe thinks he's going to get that by staying at FC Dallas, that's fine. If he thinks he's going to get that by going to Wolfsburg or somewhere else in Germany, that's also fine. But I want these guys to be putting themselves in the position where they can be improving because they're playing every day. And they don't have to do it by practicing against the best. They can do it by playing on the other side against the best. What I mean by that is, Tyler Adams going to Manchester United. Yes. That's great in aesthetics of having an American at Manchester United, but if he's not going to play every day, I'd rather him be at Newcastle. I'd rather him be at West Ham or somewhere where he's going to play every day. And yes, he'll play against what man U. he'll play against Chelsea. He'll play against these players that are going to make him better and make him learn and make him grow. He doesn't have to play with them to do that. So that's where I see it. And, and it's going to be interesting to see where some of these guys end up. I think the guys that are most likely to move Ricardo Pepe, Serginho Dest, maybe Daryl DK on loan, uh, Brendan Aronson, possibly leaving Salzburg. I don't know if Christian Pulisic goes out on loan, although that has been discussed. And I honestly don't know if Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams make that move to the EPL Just because they're both on teams that they kind of are established and can do their thing. And they're still playing against top quality competition in their league. So January, silly season is right around the corner and stay with us at Stars and Stripes FC. We're going to try and recap it all because I feel like there's a lot coming in the form of rumors as well as actual permanent transfers and loans. So thank you, Brian, for that question, because I think it's really important to highlight some of these guys and where they could end up. I want to go back to the women's national team and the men's national team because Allison Corona has a question about uh, some of the players who stood out. And she asked simply, who do I think are the true men's national team and women's national team players of the year? Uh, As you guys know, Lindsey Horan won the U.S. Soccer Player of the Year for the women and Christian Pulisic won for the men. For the women, Lindsey Horan had a great year but Kristen Press was far and away my pick for player of the year. I think she had one of the greatest years in the history of the program by any player on any team. She affected the game so many ways. She scored goals. She dished out assists. She had a streak going of, I think it was 38 games in a row, where she she was either in the goal column or the assist column in a match. That's incredible, and that has nothing to do with her off-the-ball movement, her, her play, and a lot of the hockey assists that she set up or a lot of the shots that led to goals on the other side. She did it all, and I think there's no doubt in my mind that Kristen Press is far and away the best player that we saw on the women's national team in 2021. Lindsay Horan won it, and that's great. She had a great year, but we're talking about my player of the year minus Kristen Press. and. On the men's side, I don't have this big a problem with Christian Pulisic winning it, uh, except for the fact that he was out for a large portion of the year due to injury. And that's obviously not his fault. He, When he was there, he showed improved and he performed like we expect him to. And he, and throughout World Cup qualifying, he's been great when he's been playing. Uh, but he's just been hurt way too much, I think, when it comes to the person who was there most consistently. And I know he was out for a couple of games due, sus- due to suspension, but I think Weston McKinney was my player of the year. Uh, I thought he uh, scored some very important goals, both in the Nations League and in World Cup qualifying. Uh, he scored the he scored the dose in Dos Cicero. Um, and we saw his play really affect the game, not just on the stat sheet, but really on the field. In the course of the action, dictating the flow of play, he was one of the quarterbacks for this team. And I think that he... Uh, deserve to have that honor. He's won it several times. I I love this competition between him and Tyler Adams and Christian Pulisic for how many they're going to win over the course of their career. They're all going to win a ton. Uh, But I thought Wes McKinney just barely outshone uh, Christian Pulisic. And also, I will say shout out to Brendan Aronson because, again, Brendan Aronson led the team in goals along with Sebastian Legette and, again, was called on to do that as a sub, as a starter from the left and from the middle, he did a lot for the United States men's national team this year. And I'm really glad that he broke out. I mean, in a breakout year for him, if you're thinking back to this time last year, he has not appeared on the national team at this point. He did it all in 2021 and really has shown that he is one of the best players on this roster. So uh, congrats to everybody who was nominated. Uh, But again, I think my players of the year, Kristen Press and Weston McKinney. I want to go back to another question that MJ the CPA wrote. And uh, MJ asks I see Cameron Carter Vickers and some other men's national team players playing well in Scotland. How should we view their success versus players in MLS and other leagues? And is that level of competition legit? And I think that's a great question because we've seen some guys play pretty well there. Christian Ramirez has played well, Ian Hark's, who came out of DC United. Uh, has been playing very, very well there the last few years. And as you mentioned, Cameron Carter-Vickers has also played well this year in the Scottish Premier League. The Scottish Premier League back in the early 2000s, late 90s, was one of the better leagues in the world. It has gone down considerably since then. And the level of play has gone down quite a bit, especially over the last decade. And that's not the fault of any of the guys that appear in the league uh, that are American, but that's just what it is. And it's become a league where you just hope guys don't get hurt because it's a very physical league. People foul a lot and they foul dangerously when they do it. If any of you watch Scottish Premier League games regularly, you know, this is true that it's just a league where a lot of guys play very, very dangerously and recklessly. And that leads to a lot of injuries. I think when it comes to the Scottish Premier League, a lot of guys like to use it as a step up to another league, mainly the Premier League or the championship. And that hasn't happened yet for some of these guys. I think it's coming, but it's just not there yet. And I think when it comes to rating the Scottish Premier League to other leagues like MLS or even leagues in Europe, it's hard to compare Scotland's league to MLS. I think they're very different leagues. I think this league has a little bit more athleticism, MLS does, uh, than the Scottish Premier League, but the physicality is way more present in Scotland than it is here. So I think that it's just a play of different styles. And when it comes to Scotland, I think guys at right now, if they want to show that they can be a part of the men's national team, they need to strive to be better than playing well in Scotland. I think that's the best way to put it. Strive to be better than Scotland, move to a, another league where you have more attention, more media eyeballs, where there's already a focus and you catch the eye of the coaching staff and you catch the eye of the scouts. Scotland right now is not the place to do it. So uh, while I know these guys are playing really well and I've seen uh, Ian Harks play brilliantly over the last few years uh, since he moved over there. The time may be now to try and find another move to try and elevate their career to the point where they're being considered for the national team. Because right now, those three guys, Ramirez, Harks, and Carter Vickers, I don't think are on the radar for the national team at this point, even though over the course of the years, all three of them have earned looks or even caps for the national team. Right now, they're just not getting seen. And I think they need to move to a place where the light, shines a little bit brighter and the eyeballs are are focused upon them. So the next question I have is from Stephanie Batum and Heather Bourjan, And it's actually two questions that I think go well together. So they ask, how can women's soccer grow in the United States? And how do you think the various women's leagues popping up will impact the NWSL long-term? I think that's an interesting set of questions because... Right now, as a lot of you know, the NWSL is established and there's two new teams coming in next year in Angel City and San Diego. They've had some turmoil, to say the least, over the last six months, both individually as teams and collectively as a league. But also the USL is starting two leagues over the next two years, one being the W League, which will come online in 2022. And then the USL Super League, which will start in 2023. Now, when it comes to the NWSL, right now, with the addition of Angel City and San Diego, they will be up to 12 teams. The W League, when it starts next year, will have 34 teams. And we're not sure how many the Super League has, but as of right now, they don't have any. My guess is some of these teams that are going to start in the W League will elevate themselves up to the Super League. So. You kind of have a structure in establishing a pyramid for the women's game here in America. You have the NWSL Division One, you have the USL Super League, and then underneath that, the W League. So the first thing that the NWSL needs to do is to be stable. Straight up. They just need to have more stability in the league. They have to have more stability amongst the franchises. They have to have more stability amongst the ownership because a lot of owners have changed hands. A lot of general managers have have switched. There's still some turmoil with some of these owners. And even within the league construct itself, if you guys remember are they have an interim commissioner right now because the other one, because Lisa Baird had to resign because of what a, a lot of what was going on. So they even have to have stability within the front office of the league. There's a lot that they have to do. When it comes to the women, to the players, the league has to show them love in the form of increased pay and improved facilities because some of these facilities are not hot. They're just not it. They need to be better and we can do better as a country in making that happen. I like the fact that some teams are taking it upon themselves to create their own facilities that KC Current is even building a new stadium that will I believe be built by 2024. So they're putting investment into that game. They're putting investment into their team, into the women's game, and it's going to reap rewards in the form of better play. Stronger base, stronger fan base means more, more money, more resources. All these things are going to come together. And with these three leagues, stability is important. The increased pay of the NWSL will help lift the ships of, that are the Super League and W League when it comes to their pay. Everything needs to be on a scale where everything can go up. Because coming up in 2023, CONCACAF is starting its Women's Champions League. We want to have strong teams, each league having strong teams. We need to have each league having strong teams so that everybody gets better. The competition is there. Hey, create an open cup for the women. That's way overdue. And now that we have a number of teams that are actually able to field teams and make this happen, U.S. Soccer should look into doing it. It doesn't have to be next year, but it definitely plans should be coming about so that this is something that we can experience and enjoy as fans for years to come. Because the U.S. Open Cup is great on the men's side, and I think it would be just as fantastic on the women's side to see. You wouldn't have to have the NWSL Challenge Cup or USL having preseason tournaments or anything. You could have an Open Cup that encompasses the entire country and gets everybody involved from the bottom teams to the Washington Spirit, the champions of the NWSL. Everything can fall into place, but you need stability in these leagues. And I think that's the first step. So Stephanie and Heather, thank you so much for that question. I thought that was really important. uh, And that's why I kind of combined the two to answer. I hope you guys enjoyed that answer. The next question I have comes from Antonio Borjan uh, and he asked uh, just simply fuss on MLS or NWSL in Las Vegas. Uh, yeah, I'll go to Vegas, right? <laughs> I think most of us go to Vegas. I, I mean, it'll be indeed a can't miss road trip. That's for sure. But Vegas has to figure out a way to make themselves competitive in the entertainment market. I mean, Las Vegas lights has a little bit of glitz and they have uh, some, some quirky stuffs that they do with llamas and money drops and things like that, but they are competing in Las Vegas. They're competing for entertainment dollars. They're competing for entertainment attention in a, in the entertainment capital of the world where you don't have to, I mean, why leave the strip unless you really want to do something right. And so when it comes to Vegas, they have to figure out how to make that work. It sounds like they are trying to uh, build a stadium, either right on the strip or just off the strip, that will definitely help because people will drive by and they'll see that stadium and go, yep, I want to go there. Who's playing? Just like they do for the Las Vegas Raiders and for the Vegas Golden Knights. Like Those stadiums are so close to the strip that people can walk by them and figure out what's going on and attend a game. And they have the attention of all of these tourists that come through and they have the attention of the city. So I think it could work for MLS and NWSL, I think they just need to figure out how to compete in Vegas. And that, my friends, is an answer that I don't have. Because I'm going to tell you, most times when I go to Vegas, I've I've been going to Vegas for a long time. And until just recently, I did not have to worry about sports when I was there. Now that I'm going for some sports, it does make sense to try and figure out a way to compete in that market. But I do think that it will obviously be a cannot-miss road trip for most away fans, especially. Uh, But really, Vegas, I think it seems like it's more formality for MLS than it is for NWSL. So we'll see how it works. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to go back, obviously. Uh, I love Vegas, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely be seeing a lot of Vegas, whether it be for CONCACAF Nations League or CONCACAF Gold Cup or other events there. But clearly, soccer is in Vegas to stay. Okay, I have two more questions that I want to get to. The first one comes from Matthew Anderson. And Matthew writes, take a player who has not yet appeared in a World Cup qualifier onto the roster for Qatar, meaning the World Cup. And he says, P.S., it cannot be Jordan Morris or Aaron Long. And honestly, I think this might be the easiest answer for me. I'm taking Bill Hamid because everyone out there who knows me Knows that I think Bill Hamid is one of our best three goalkeepers in America. I think honestly, he might be our best goalkeeper in America. You can debate me if you want to. I really don't care. Bill is my boy, and I want to bring him on the plane to Qatar. So if I have to take one guy, very easy answer Bill Hamid. Now, if Matthew, if you press me and you say I have to take an outfield player, I will stay in my neck of the woods and I will go with Kevin Paredes, who honestly would have started for the team in their December camp if he had not gotten injured. Uh, I think he has a lot of promise uh, at the right wing back and even right back. He can go up to the wing. He can be very versatile. I think he is a kid that is going to be a factor for the men's national team down the road. And that when I mean down the road, I don't mean miles away. I'm talking half a block. This kid is on the verge of doing something special and really forming his name onto the list of guys that I think would be on the team in 2026. So uh, I would definitely bring Kevin Paredes to Qatar. But again, I say this knowing we need to qualify first, and I'm very focused on qualifying first. I don't care who was on the roster to qualify as long as we get it done. So let's go ahead and get it done, boys. So Matthew, thank you for that question. We'll 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 obviously table that discussion until after we qualify. So let's get through that first. I do want to go to my last question, and it stays with, The theme of the World Cup, and it comes from my friend, Ebony Christmas, and she writes, what does success look like for the men's national team if they get to Qatar? Is it the quarterfinals or is it winning the group? What is it? I think when you go to a World Cup, you obviously want to get out of the group. Whether you win or you finish second, it does not matter. This one is a little different because it is the last one that we have with 32 teams before we expand to 48. So it's the last opportunity that you really have where winning the group is a big deal. Uh, So winning the group would be great. I don't think it's the measure of success. I think the true measure of success is first getting out of the group. I think that's the no question, no brainer answer. Getting out of the group. First or second does not matter. When you get to the knockout stage, getting to... The quarterfinal would be a great, great thing, especially for a team who, again, two years ago, people were questioning whether we would even make World Cup again, because people thought the, the, the state of our union was so low and the, the morale around this team was so poor that people thought we wouldn't even get out of the group in Nations League. So, this is So getting to the quarterfinal would be a great accomplishment. I'm an optimist. I'm one that likes to aim high. I would love to see us in the semifinals for this. And obviously, if the, however this falls out, it's obviously possible. You just have to have some good luck and some good play and really combine those two throughout the course of the tournament. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us in this way if we do make the World Cup, of course. The fact that Major League Soccer will have just ended And when it comes to the European leagues, they are just starting means our guys are in end of season form. These guys will be in peak condition and will have just been coming off a summer where it is, you know, in some places very, very hot, over 100 degrees in Texas and right here in D.C. And in Florida, where it's muggy, these guys will be prepared for a World Cup in the heat more so than most countries in the world. So maybe getting to the semifinals isn't so far-fetched, but I think the realistic goal is to get out of the group, get to that round of 16 match, and win that match to get to the quarterfinal. I think that's realistic. I think that would be a super successful run in the World Cup. But I think the base is getting out of the group. To call anything successful, we got to get out of the group, whether we win it or not. Getting out of the group is the baseline for determining success when it comes to the United States men's national team in Qatar. So that was a nice list of questions. I really appreciate everyone who submitted them. And I apologize again that we didn't get to all of them. And we will keep the mailbags going as long as you guys have questions. So drop me a line at SSFCpodcast at gmail.com or use the hashtag SSFCpodcast on Twitter. We will try to do another one as soon as the questions build up. Maybe we'll do one in a few weeks. But for now... That will do it for episode 68 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And I hope everyone remains safe and healthy throughout the holiday season. As always, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Rates and reviews are awesome and they really help. So five stars if you like what you're hearing. And you can now review on Spotify. So for those of you who are listening to the podcast on that platform, five-star reviews would really be appreciated and helpful. So Until next time, from all of us here at Stars and Stripes FC, thank you so much for listening, for reading, and for engaging with us throughout 2021. I know it was a wild year, both on and off the field for everyone, and we really do appreciate it. Next year is going to be just as important. We have a World Cup coming up. We have World Cup qualifying to get through for the men and the women, so keep reading, keep listening, keep interacting with us, stay engaged. We really appreciate you all. So, Happy New Year, everyone. We will see you in 2022 take care